With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I am Rebecca Harold, your host, and I'm so happy that you're joining us. Welcome to the second episode of my show. I'm excited to have this platform to continue one of my passions, and that is raising the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and also providing listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect the privacy of your clients, your customers, patients, employees, as well as your family and friends, and of course, yourself. I've been working as an IT information security and privacy professional my entire adult career for over 25 years now, and I've helped hundreds of organizations of all sizes through my consulting business, The Privacy Professor, which I founded in 2004, and then since 2014, I've helped close to a 1,000 more businesses to date through my additional business I founded, Symbus LLC, which provides cloud-based information security, privacy, and compliance services. My goal with hosting data security and privacy with the privacy professor is twofold. Number one, to help all sizes and types of organizations to better understand current and emerging information security and privacy risks and then how to mitigate those risks. And number two, to help every individual in the general public to better protect their own personal information and know how to approach those businesses to whom they are entrusting their personal information to know how to ask them um, if they're ensuring that they're doing all that they should to secure your data and not to share it inappropriately or in ways that could result in privacy breaches. Today, I'm really looking forward to speaking with our guest about a topic that I see a really great need to address. Last month, one of my LinkedIn contacts posted an infographic that he had created that he claimed was a, quote, comprehensive history of computer hacking and related crimes. And looking at it, I did not see any mention of the Morris worm. I saw no mention of Clifford Stoll tracking down the hacker Marcus Hess, which Stoll wrote about it in his book, The Cuckoo's Egg, which is really a great book, by the way, and was also made into at least one documentary and movie. I commented on that LinkedIn person's post, and I asked him why he left them and some other notables in computer crime and hacking history out. And he replied to me, well, I've never heard of them. 
what? This was a person who was a self-proclaimed information security expert claiming over 20 years of experience. How could he not know about this? I knew right then and there that one of my first radio shows had to be about computer crimes and hacking and also to point out that those early vulnerabilities and threats that led to those early computer crimes, they still need to be mitigated today along with all the new ones that have been accumulating over the years. My Simbus clients and also my privacy professor clients, especially the startups and those who have little background in information security, as well as those who are comparatively new to the information security profession, have often, often told me that computer problems of more than 10 years ago are no longer applicable. I even saw a quote in a widely circulated publication from the vice president of an information security uh, uh, department at a large tech company who actually said this. She said, the data security risks of more than 10 years ago are no longer relevant. The data security risks of today are completely new and different. What? (laughs) Are you kidding me? There are so many ways that this statement is wrong. So today I am happy for the opportunity to speak with a true trailblazer in the computer crime prosecution space and to hear about what he's seen over the years with regard to computer crime, hacking, what has changed, and the things that have remained the same. Our guest today is Mark Rash. Mark is an attorney and author of computer security, internet law, and privacy-related articles. In the late 1980s, in the late 1980s, Mark created the Computer Crime Unit at the U.S. Department of Justice, where he led efforts aimed at investigating and prosecuting cyber, high-tech, and white-collar crime. Mark helped the FBI and Treasury Department develop their original procedures on handling electronic evidence for use in computer crime prosecutions. He created and taught classes at the FBI Academy and the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center on electronic crime and evidence. He's taught evidence, computer, and privacy law classes at a variety of universities. Mark, I'm really happy to speak with you about this really important topic today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Rebecca. And you're making me feel ancient now. <laughs> you No, you're very well experienced. That's the way <laughs> I like to view it. So um, you've seen a lot of computer crime over the years. So let's start by going back to the general beginning of your computer crime fighting career. Let's start with uh, the Morris Worm case. Can you provide a brief overview of that case and then let us know? I know, it's not something that can be brief, but uh, then let us know, were you assigned the Morris Worm case to prosecute, or did you ask to do that case? So it's a a very funny story. The the Morris Worm happened on November 2nd and 3rd, 1988. And uh, it it turns out that I was up in Boston working on another criminal uh, investigation. I was at the headquarters of Digital Equipment Corporation uh, up in 
Boston working on the cuckoo's egg case, which we'll talk oh. about in a few minutes. And I was gathering evidence there when I get a phone call that says that the internet is being attacked, essentially. Wow. Uh, so I learned of the Morris Worm case while I was working on another case up in Boston. Uh, so I was, I was sort of assigned to that case based upon my background and experiences in computer crime. But the Morris Worm case was a case involving a then 23-year-old graduate student named Robert Tappan Morris. And uh, Robert Morris was, had just graduated from Harvard University with a degree in computer science and was now in graduate school at Cornell. And when he started graduate school, I guess in September uh, of 1988, he started working on this project, which was uh, ultimately became the Morris Worm, which he launched in November. The worm itself was designed to break into as many computers as it could. Now, remember back then, we're talking about 1988, there were probably worldwide around 50 to 60,000 computers. Right. Just to put that in perspective, you probably have that many internet-connected computers um, right now in, in your average square block in downtown mm-hmm. San Francisco. All right. But this was worldwide. And, and the nature of the ARPANET, DARPANET, MILNET, uh, the precursors of what, what we now call the Internet or the World Wide Web, they were mainly uh, universities, military installations, large banks, large insurance companies. The, the Internet was not itself privatized, and that, that is meaning made available to the public. So you had to have a be a large institution or a research institution or a military installation or a government in order to have access to the internet. So so you were already working on the Stoll case. I didn't realize that. For some reason I had them uh, flipped around backwards. No, the Stoll uh, case was actually first. The problem with the Stoll case, and we can talk about that in a few minutes, the facts of that case, was that the vast majority of the activity that happened in the Stoll case and the defendants were not in the United States. Right. So in order to be able to successfully prosecute that case, we had to find a way to get the defendants into the United States. But my background before that had been doing white-collar crime prosecutions and espionage prosecutions. Ah. So I had already prosecuted a number of cases where we were either informally or formally able to get criminal defendants into the United States from overseas. So in those cases, though, were they necessarily involving um, computer access, or was it just you know our general thought of espionage, like when we watch uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, you know those types of things where they had the the traditional, if you will, before computers came along, types of espionage. It's interesting because it was a little bit of each. The uh-huh. idea of a foreign adversary breaking into U.S. military computers to steal secrets was only in its infancy. Okay. What was actually happening in one of the cases I worked on was a foreign government trying to steal computers, uh, not oh. for the data on them, but for the processing power of them. Uh, okay. They were trying to get ex, uh, trying to get export of what were at that time sophisticated computer systems, uh, presumably for a uh, a nuclear uh, capability. 
Okay. Oh, wow. So not only for the, the processing power, but I would anticipate, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe for the intellectual property of, of seeing how they worked uh, as not well. Really. No, they wanted oh. it to, in order to, to run the nuclear facility and stuff, they wanted a, a, a high-tech oh. computer. Okay. And this was a country that was not allowed to have them. We had we had then and we still do have export controls on what are called dual dual use items. So so you know they 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 this is that was considered high tech computers back then, back when you were trying to get supercomputers and like yeah. another thing that's interesting about the, the the world of the internet in nineteen eighty eight was that um Back then, you would use computers, which were basically dumb terminals, Mm -hmm. and you would access, first of all, your local computer that was connected to the Internet, and then you would telnet over to another computer, like uh, um, at the National Computer Security Center or at uh, a a, um, a supercomputer. Mm -hmm. So people were using computers not so much to share information among the people, but to share computer resources among the researchers. Well, and that's a good way to kind of get back to the Morse worm case because um, what I always thought was interesting about it was the fact that while he was trying to get into all these different places, the unintended effect of that, to my understanding, is that, you know, it was eating up memory and, and he hadn't, is it true that he really hadn't planned for it to actually bring the, the ARPANET to a standstill? That's right. What he, what he was trying to do is he was trying to do something between a proof of concept, a test of the internet, and sort of planting a flag. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a, a number of different things. It was it was the a thought experiment gone wrong. And his goal was to show how you could break into a computer. Mm-hmm. And he used various mechanisms, defects, vulnerabilities, uh, and the like, to attempt to break into to as many computers as he could. Once he broke into the computer, the goal was to make a copy of this worm so that it could replicate itself and then find other computers to break into. So the goal was for it to spread widely be persistent, meaning that it would be, be difficult to get rid of completely, uh, and and um, that was it. He had no intention of causing any harm, any damage whatsoever, but he wanted to make it difficult to get rid of so he could come back later and say, look how widely I was able to break in, look how many computers I was able to break into. And so it was also a little bit of um, a way of showing, hey, look what I can do. So that's interesting. So the way you're describing it, it almost sounds like he didn't have really malicious intent, but he was kind of like what what we look at as our white hat hackers of today. He was trying to demonstrate the vulnerabilities of those systems and maybe uh, also as a kind of an effect of that, an intended effect, he also created a way to show how a distributed denial of service attack could be launched. That's right. Well, he was, it, was a, it was a white hat, he had a white hat hacker's mentality, but mm. without the permission that a white hat hacker needs to get before they launch an attack. Which brought him to uh, court and which right. led to you prosecuting him. So how long did it take that uh, case to, to try in court? 
Well, the first question is how long did it take to solve? How long did it take from the time the, yes. the worm was launched to, to the time we knew who did it? And there were uh, there were efforts taken in the worm itself and in the way the worm was launched to conceal the identity of the author. The he didn't he did not launch it from Cornell University. He actually telneted into. Um, uh, I think it was MIT was the first place. It may have been the University of Chicago and launched it from there. Okay. Uh, he took efforts to conceal where he was coming from and what he was doing and the like. On the other hand, there were, there were lots of clues as to who it was, including his leaving his initials in, in part of the code. His initials oh. were RTM. And uh, that was his hacker handle, as it were, or his handle, and it's RTM for Robert Tappan Morris. Uh, the other, the other ways he got caught is that, uh, well, some of them were silly. Uh, one of them was he told his best friend to uh, send out a message to the internet about what had happened, and that that the author didn't intend to do it, and how it was a harm, and it, you know, all this basically a combination of an apology and a how to remediate. Uh, and his friend did so, and uh, that led a New York Times reporter to talk to the best friend. And then New York Times is talking to the best friend, and the uh, the best friend inadvertently referred to the person who did it as RTM. Oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, you know. So so we had that, and then the third one was there. The, there were some other ways that we were able to find out that it was uh, Robert Morris. So within. As I recall, three days, four days, we knew who it was. Wow. Uh, and uh, like I said, he was not trying to do anything criminal. He was not trying to do anything harmful. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so it wasn't like he was taking extraordinary efforts to conceal his identity. He just took a few, few steps to make sure it didn't point back to him. But we were able to figure it out pretty quickly. So back then... Uh, the IP addresses, did the use of those come into play at all? Because, of course, now that's a, a very big um, part of tracking folks down. But back then, I mean... Yeah. No, no, we did that through IP addresses as well. I mean, okay. we used the IP addresses to track back to uh, the... The problem was we had this very broadly spreading worm. Mm -hmm. And in order to figure out the point of origin of the worm, you did the same thing that you would do if it was a, a virus, uh, a biological virus. You have to find your way back to patient zero. So you have all of these computers over the internet that are infected and you have to figure, and, and they're cross-infecting each other. So the fact that a computer got, in, got infected doesn't mean that they were the first or the last one being hit. They may have been infected and infected others before they started even feeling the, the impact of the worm. So you have to go back from each worm, uh, each instance of the worm, and each computer and figure out uh, when and how it got infected. And to make matters worse, what would happen is the computer that would be replicating copies of the worm, it would slow down, eventually become unusable, be rebooted, and when it's rebooted, it's completely free of the worm. Mm, so you have right. no trace of the worm when you reboot it. And then it would quickly get reinfected and slow down and stop again. So you have to go back to the log data the other problem that we found, which is even true today, is the, the scope and extent to which, in order to investigate the worm or virus and communicate with others, we rely on the Internet. 
Mm-hmm. Most computer researchers, even back in 1988, they only knew other researchers by their email addresses. Hmm. And so when the, when the internet went down, they could not contact other people to find out why the internet got, went down because the only way they had to communicate with them is through the internet. Very much like today. Very much interesting (laughs) problem is when you're developing disaster recovery plans. One of the things you do is you have this this call tree. Call this person, contact them. And almost always these are Skype numbers, VoIP numbers, uh, or or internet email addresses. Mm -hmm. And if the internet is shut down, none of that works. And like you said, these were researchers and military. So I imagine that that caused... Uh, could have caused some significant problems and just uh, especially if it was the military if they were using it for something critical at that time. And, um, and, were, and this was the height of the Cold War. Yeah. So what happened was a denial of service attack to the military is first and foremost an attack. Mm-hmm. And well, so they start with the assumption that this is a foreign adversary trying to dis- disrupt communications as a precursor for what's called a kinetic attack. So then after you got all this um, evidence and you went to court, was that one of the major things about the fact that because it was military when you were trying the, the case in court, um, how uh, that was involved in any way? Or, or describe a little bit about sure. the, so- the court case. So when we charged the case, we we had lots of options on how to charge this. We could have charged it as a simple misdemeanor, uh, and there were some who who wanted to do that. The the problem with that was this was a this was a computer crime that that literally impacted the world. It was a large scale impact uh, to the internet to the way people did business, to the military and the like. And a misdemeanor is, is sort of what, what happens if you get into a car accident or you, uh, you know, shoplift uh, something from the local 7-Eleven. That's a misdemeanor. This didn't seem to me to be misdemeanor conduct. And, and by saying that, by the way, I don't want to impute any particular evil to Robert Morris himself. All right. It, it's right. just that the nature of the impact and the nature of the effect of it did not seem trivial. Right. So on you the other hand, on the other hand, we could have also charged this as six thousand counts of of computer crime, each of which carry a maximum pun- punishment of twenty five years in jail. And that six thousand, based upon how many computers that it actually brought down. That's correct. Okay, interesting. So then uh, how long did it take to get to reach a verdict in that case? And, and was it a judge's verdict or was it by jury? So we indicted the case uh, probably around uh, about three or four months after, maybe six months. And we were in negotiations with his counsel about you know what was going on. Um, and the trial was in January of the following year. Uh, and... It was in Syracuse, New York, because the, the worm was launched from Cornell, which is in, in Ithaca, and the closest federal courthouse is in Syracuse. The trial itself lasted, as I recall, 10 days, two weeks, something along those lines. And what was interesting about it is we're talking about 1989 at that point, and not one of the jurors, and it was a jury trial, not one of the jurors had ever used a computer. We had one juror who worked uh, – at uh, I think she did reservations for U.S. Airways, 
and so she had used a, a terminal for, for reservations, and that was it. Nobody had a PC. Nobody did word processing. Nobody had done anything on the Internet. None of them had an email address. You know, none of that. So that's a significant change uh, from back then when you were trying to case to now when almost everyone uh, has had at least one and probably more like half a dozen computer t- computing devices that they've used. So, right. And most um, people have 10 or 15 years of experience in, in using the Internet. And even young people, you know, that they, they live and breathe the Internet. They're familiar with the technology. So this would be sort of like trying to explain how an internal combustion engine works to somebody in 1840. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Very interesting. So how long did it take? We have about two minutes before our break. But how long did it take until they came back with a – you know, the decision. As I recall, the jury came back about five or six hours after the the close. We didn't even go overnight. Um, But, you know, the the, the majority of the time, my understanding was that they were deliberating. Uh, I I remember one of the, uh, the comments by one of the jurors is, we thought he did it, but we didn't think he was a criminal. And I think that's a, that's a good description of Robert Mars as well. Mm -hmm. He, he did something which violated the criminal statutes, but he himself was not a criminal. Wow, interesting. Well, we're, we're going to uh, take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, why, I want us to continue on, and we'll get to Clifford Stoll's case. Uh, today, we're speaking with Mark Rash, an attorney and cybercrime prosecution trailblazer. When we come back, we're going to chat more about computer crimes cases and how they've evolved over the years. And if interested, you can reach Mark through his email address, mdrash at gmail.com, mdrash at gmail.com. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as provide show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my website, Simmons360.com, PrivacyProfessor.org, and my LinkedIn site. Please stay with us. I know you are going to be fascinated by more information that Mark will be sharing with us. We'll be right back. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold & Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. Today we are talking with Mark Rash, an attorney and cybercrime prosecution trailblazer who is also often interviewed on network news shows to get his insights on current cybercrime and cases and so on. So before the break, we talked about Mark's background and also had a lot of great information about the Morris Worm case uh, and some of the issues involved with that. So now what I want to do, I want to move on to a case that we briefly mentioned, but it's definitely um, something that I think more people need to realize about because, you know, as we discussed before the break, so much of what you saw in 1988 truly is something that would be um, also applicable today. So now let's go to the, the Clifford Stoll case, which you also prosecuted. And just for the audience, uh, the listeners, this was where Stoll tracked down a German computer hacker while he was working at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory in Berkeley, California. So, you know, that came before the Morse Worm case. How did that case come to you, Mark, and uh, what what are some of the unique or surprising things about it? Well, this was a, a fascinating case and probably one of the first, second, or third uh, federal computer crime investigations. And I want to correct you that I didn't prosecute the case because pro- the case ended up being prosecuted by the uh, West German authorities. Oh. Uh, all, of, all of these, uh, we were investigating the case and we were prepared to prosecute if we could extradite the individuals. But once they were prosecuted by West Germany, there was no possibility of extradition. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So what happened was Cliff Stoll was a, uh, a, a actually a planetary astrophysicist working at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories. And uh, he noticed uh, they, they had one of these things as other duties as assigned. And he was also assigned to be in charge of the computer system that he was using to track orbits of the different planets and and do his basic research that he was doing. So he had no background and training in in information security and very little background and training in computers and computer networking or network engineering. But one of the things, as I might point out in the last segment, is people used computers back then to use the resources of other computers. So if you had a supercomputer in San Diego and other people wanted to use it, they would log into that computer and use the resources. So if you're doing heavy-duty heavy duty processing, instead of going it's, – it's sort of the precursor of today's cloud. It is the use of other people's servers for data processing and the like. So kind of like grid computing, really. It is a form of grid computing. But what they did back then is because computers were so expensive and so rare, 
each computer center would charge others to use their resources. Mm -hmm. So a lot of a lot of this had to do with the costs associated with using other people's computer networks. And as a result, it was important to track computer usage, not because you were checking authorized logins, but you were checking to see whether or not you were being paid for the logins. Mm-hmm. And in the course of a, an audit that Cliff Stoll, the, this scientist, performed, he found that there was a 75-cent accounting error between the difference between the amount of time he could take account for and the amount of time that had actually been used on the computer network. And Cliff Stoll being the kind of person he was, he wasn't going to allow that to go. And he kept investigating and investigating and found unauthorized logins that he tracked back to East Germany. And so the other thing he found interesting is the thing that the East Germans were looking for is what was called SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, also known as Star Wars. And they were Ah. trying to look for classified U.S. government information. And part of this was, this was Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories, just down the block, or actually up the hill, from Lawrence Livermore Laboratories. Lawrence Livermore was a national laboratory that contained classified information. And it's entirely possible that the hackers from Germany thought that they were breaking into Lawrence Livermore and Ah. Berkeley. Yeah, definitely. And you know, what you mentioned about that 75 cent discrepancy, and for my IT listeners out there, um, you know, when I started out and was building computer systems and computer regions, there was an acceptable air range. Uh, air ranges. And um, in 1999, I had um, actually had Clifford Stoll to the business where I was responsible for security and privacy. And he, he talked about this. And what I noted then was how the um, the IT folks, uh, we, at that time we had like 800 programmers in our IT area, and that was something that was emphasized, uh, that I wanted to have emphasized, the fact that oftentimes the IT folks have this acceptable error range, and that's one of the things that Stoll told us during his talk, that because the IT folks said that's within the acceptable range of error, they weren't interested in the 75 cents, but he... Uh, because he's an astrophysicist, was so interested in, you know, any type of discrepancy that that's why he pursued it. And it's, uh, I think that's an important lesson. In, yeah. So in what we that. do is we do thresholding. We mm-hmm. say anything below this threshold, ignore anything above this, we'll pay attention to. And, of course, now it's very easy with computers and computer networks to uh, to make sure that everything we do as a hacker is below the threshold of what, what uh, will get your attention. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if we threshold three, three bad password attempts before you get a lockout, they'll just do a series of two. And, or, you know, if we do, uh, and if, if we, you know that you can do three bad, bad password attempts every hour, they'll just do them every hour. So they'll look for what the thresholds are and be below them. Right, right. So, so back to the Clifford Stoll case then. You said you didn't try this, but this was something that was tried in Germany. So how did that case go? I mean, what did you see as a difference in how that case was tried um, in contrast with the Morse worm, which was such a completely different type of case? 
Well, the first problem here was this was these were actually uh, hackers from Hanover. It was called the Chaos Computer Club, and Marcus Hess was one of them. But there were actually five of them who who ended uh-huh. up being arrested. Uh, and the first thing when I say they were prosecuted is you had to find a crime. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it, it was not entirely clear what the crime was. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, this was the, the, it was clear that the goal of these hackers was espionage. Mm-hmm. But if you break into a computer, what does it mean to break into a computer? We know what it means to break into a house, but what does it mean to break into a computer? What does it mean to steal data? We know what it means to steal a car. We know what it means to steal furniture or steal a TV. But what does it mean to steal data? So we, we have to come up with legal paradigms to deal with conduct that we don't like. And none of it existed back then. None of it existed. So then after that, that's probably what prompted some of the the federal computer crime laws that came um, soon after that case. We had a computer crime law, uh, which I helped to write, called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Yeah. Uh, and, And, but... That's the other thing that happens is when you're when you're writing a statute like that, you're dealing by analogy. So you say, mm-hmm. well, breaking into a computer is sort of like breaking into a house. And you say, well, what makes breaking into a house illegal? What does trespass mean? Well, you're there without permission. Well, who has the authority to give you permission? Uh, and what if you think you have permission, but you don't? Uh, what if you um, somebody gives you permission, but they didn't have the authority to give you permission? And what does it mean to have permission to enter a computer system? If you give me permission to come into your living room, does that give me permission to go into your bedroom? Mm-hmm. And all of, none of these things were really truly fleshed out then, and they're not truly fleshed out now. So we still and, keep fighting these battles. And in Germany then, I mean... Did they take the German laws into consideration, or were there no German laws at that point in time? So what you have to charge them with is you have to charge them with crimes like fraud or theft or espionage or uh, violating state secrets. You have to look for something other than computer crime laws to to go after them with. Now, now obviously, now there are almost universal computer crime laws. You have the Council Mm -hmm. of Europe uh, Cybercrime Treaty back in 1990, I think it was. But uh, you you have to find something that's a crime. And the the Cuckoo's Egg case was a true cat and mouse game between uh, Clifford Stoll and the hackers. Mm-hmm. trying to find out where they were coming from. And then back then, uh, in that case, the IP addresses were not of any use because they right. weren't mapped specific institutions. So Clifford Stoll used various techniques to, to get these hackers to reveal their, their identity and location. So his work was critical, I would assume, in the case that was tried over in Germany and is what you were collecting in, in the event, is this correct in my understanding, in the event that maybe that case didn't turn out the way you would yeah, no, want be, it before to? The Germans, before the Germans even prosecuted, uh, our goal was to try to get these people back to the United States or over to the United States where they could be prosecuted in the U.S. So then... What happened to them in, in Germany? Well, it's very interesting what happened. The, fir- the first thing to note is that most countries, in order to have an extradition, the offense has to be a crime in both countries, which meant uh-huh. if we had charged them with computer hacking, we could not extradite them because computer hacking is not a crime, was not at the time a crime in Germany. 
So we could charge them with fraud and espionage. If we had charged them with espionage, uh, even though that's mutually criminal, stealing U.S. government secrets is not a crime in Germany. So then, basically, did they get off? No, they were charged in, in, in Germany, and my recollection was, with, with offenses like theft and uh, theft of information, theft of property, things like that. They were convicted, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my best recollection, however, was that I, one of them uh, was alleged to have committed suicide, mm-hmm. uh, having found, been found on the side of the road uh, immolated, meaning having burnt himself to death. And oh, I gosh. question to this day whether or not that truly was a suicide. Mm-hmm. Remember, this was an intelligence operation. Mm-hmm. This, this was a classified intelligence, counterintelligence operation. This was not just a bunch of uh, – the, the individuals who did this may have been just a bunch of hackers, but mm-hmm. they were working for and with and for the benefit of foreign intelligence services, something that we see paralleled even today. Yeah, well, definitely all the nation state hacking that's going on, and we know it's going on. I mean, there's always digital crumbs that are left, and certainly now we're finding digital crumbs leading to such places as the dark web and the deep web. Um, And I anticipate that you're probably working with or looking at different types of cyber crimes. that have occurred or maybe are going on within the dark web. What are no, we had the dark web. We had the dark web back then. They had BBSs and and uh, uh, different locations where people shared information about hacking tools and techniques and target selection and and uh, threat information and you know methodologies and all of that. And it was it's started back then. And they're still using the same technologies to mm-hmm. to covertly share information today. And that's such an important point, back to my intro, you know, where I was talking about how I'm seeing and hearing so many people say, oh, well, what happened years ago, you know, doesn't apply anymore. But actually, it seems like the opportunity to use old methods today are probably even better uh, chance of working just because of that ignoring history and not learning from it. Absolutely. You know, in the Science Museum in Boston, there's a little display case, a little plastic display case. And in that plastic display case is a uh, a, a three and a half inch floppy disk, which contains the original source code of the Morris worm. And by the way, you can download it on the internet right now. I will tell you right now, if you were to launch the Morris worm, this is is a few lines of code written by a graduate student in 1988. It would cause, and wouldn't cause as much harm, but it would impact and affect several orders of magnitude more computers than it did when it was released back then. (laughs) Part of the problem is we are constantly trying to make our computers and networks backward compatible, which means Mm -hmm. things that ran 10 and 20 and 30 years ago will still run today. But we are much more dependent on the technology now. It is much more complicated and therefore difficult to defend than Mm -hmm. it was back then. And it still has all of the same vulnerabilities plus thousands more. 
Well, and not only that, here's something that really, you know, with this recent um, processor chip with using melt, with the meltdown vulnerability and the Spectre vulnerability, one of the things that, you know, I, I try to point out to my clients and folks I speak with is the fact that those chips, as far as the security around them, those chips had not been re-engineered since they started being used back to around 1995. So that vulnerability has been around for a very long time, and we only found it recently. So it makes you wonder how many people may have exploited that between that time. And uh, also, you know, why didn't somebody look at changing that? But, um, you know, what we know from the past is something we always have to keep in mind as we also continually learn about what's new, what's going on new out there. So what are you seeing that's uh, new, that's maybe new types of computer crimes, but that are exploiting old and long-existing vulnerabilities? Well, what's interesting is back back then, computers were used to connect to other computers. Mm -hmm. And we see a huge evolution in how people use computers. The first was to connect computers to computers. Then it was to connect people to data and now it's to connect people to people all right mm-hmm. and so this whole evolution of how we use computers and then it's going to be computers to devices which is going to be like iot devices or connecting devices to people the same the same methodology each evolution of computer technology and how we use it creates its own unique problem so a vulnerability that existed back in the 70s, 80s, 90s back then has significantly more impact and methods of, of exploiting. We have new crimes that we would never have thought of, things like uh, cyber stalking, cyber harassment, uh, revenge porn, doxing. That stuff didn't exist back then right. because you couldn't do it. Well, even even things like distributed denial of service and ransomware attacks didn't mm-hmm. exist on their own because if you launched a ransomware attack, there was no data to be locked up. Right. Right. Exactly. It didn't have the same impact uh, as it does now. So you have all these new methods of attack. Even phishing attacks didn't work because so few people had email, which was the primary, is the primary. One of the first computer viruses was called the AIDS virus, and it was mm-hmm. developed by a, a medical researcher in Africa who was upset with the scope and extent of funding for research against AIDS. That AIDS virus was distributed by mailing copies of a floppy disk to people. A floppy disk. Yes. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, you can look it up, do a search, but there's been different sizes of floppy disks throughout history, too. This was a yeah. five-inch soft floppy disk, <laughs> which is a, which is an improvement over the eight-inch floppy yes. disk. Yes, yeah. You know? so, oh, so my gosh. Just to give you an idea that, that, that the, the methods you had for distributing malicious code are so uh, much more. We're so, we're so much different. This is in a day, even before the day when most people access the internet, who did access the internet, did so by dial-up. Right, right. So, and, and, well, I want to, you know, make a, an important point that I think you've highlighted greatly with, with your information and, and telling about all your experiences. Computer security is not something that uh, swaps in and swaps out as far as risks go. Computer security risks 
are cumulative in that we don't ever get rid of the risk. We get new risks. So you can't let go of or ignore all of those longstanding risks that we've seen for years and years. And one of the Um, interesting things, uh, Rebecca, is that because of Moore's Law, things that were secure before are no longer secure today. Yeah. If you, have, if you have data that you've encrypted with, you know, AES encryption, and you said, oh, it'll take them forever to ever be able to break that, well, that'll take about four or five minutes. Exactly. Well, I, in the remaining time we have left, I do want to ask you, kind of flip this around a little bit, because we've been talking about you uh, prosecuting and going after folks, you know, to show the, the crimes they've done, but... Let's switch it around. If you could defend, if you could defend any computer crime uh, defendant that's been prosecuted to date or who's currently be being prosecuted, who would it be and why? Well, there are certain there are d- various levels of computer crime cases. You know, mm-hmm. there are there are evil, malicious people who do horrible things. The the vast majority of computer crimes you're seeing today are one of two kinds. They are either state sponsored activities. To, to gain money or advantage for a state actor, or they are organized, and I use that term loosely, uh, criminal activities designed to steal money from lots of people. So all of the phishing attacks, all of the theft of credit card numbers and stuff, that falls into one category or another. So the vast majority of things that we, we look at, you can add to that industrial espionage, you can theft of trade secrets, all that kind of stuff, which run in between those things. Having said that, we still have computer hackers who get overcharged by the government, uh, persecuted rather than prosecuted. And that doesn't mean they haven't done something illegal. It just means that uh, there's a tendency to overreact in cases, uh, uh, particularly among young people who do stupid stuff. You know, it, it, when, when, I was, when I was a kid, the worst thing I could do is, 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 is burn down the living room rug. You know, <laughs> right. uh, playing with playing with rubbing alcohol and matches, you know, uh, and, and, and now, you know, a 14 a, a year old could take down the Federal Reserve. So the scope of what they can do is, is, is much greater. Uh, you know, as a lawyer, you, you can pretty much defend uh, any kind of action. I've seen a number of cases in which people have been overcharged, charged with things that aren't crimes, that shouldn't be crimes, uh, and the like, even charged with, with publishing papers that somebody else found embarrassing. And mm-hmm. part of that has to do with we have made so many different things criminal, and we have vastly expanded the powers of law enforcement and others to gather personal information about us. It's much more difficult to do anything anonymously these days. Oh, well, yeah, if, if at all. So there's so many hacktivists, as you will, you know, as we call them, out there, and so many are trying to um, reveal what type of bugs might be in systems. Uh, but, um, you know, when they try to notify the software vendors or whomever about these bugs, that's where a lot of times they feel that um, they aren't being listened to or they're being told to go away. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, that might be another area. 
So uh, maybe the bug bounty programs. What what do you think about those? Do you think the bug bounty programs that so many companies have now have improved upon the situation where you know a lot of companies were prosecuting, going after the people who found the software bugs? Uh, actually, I do. I'm a big fan personally of well-designed bug bounty programs. I think that uh, if you do it right, you are paying people to demonstrate success at breaking into your system. The, the problem with bug bounty programs is that many networks and, uh, and network devices are so brittle that the act of testing them and trying to break into them can cause them to crash at, in unexpected ways. But, you know, I think the idea of motivating people to tell you that they're breaking in so they get paid to tell you as opposed to to exploit it, I think is a good idea generally. Yeah, I agree with you there because I think uh, most of the time the folks who are are trying to find those holes are oftentimes, you know, truly curious. I mean, kind of going, hearkening back to the traditional definition of hackers who basically had a curiosity about uh, how things worked. But we're One of the interesting things about a bug bounty program, though, is lots of people say, well, I want to make sure that everybody who participates in the bug bounty program has had a background check and a security clearance, and that's the wrong way to do it. You yeah. want really bad guys people who have no morals and and no qualms about doing anything to try to break in because that's what the really bad guys are doing. If you're defended against them, you're defended against most people. Yeah, exactly. Well, I I hate to stop our conversation here, but we're we're getting to the end of our time. So thank you again so much, Mark, for being on the show and providing such interesting information. Uh, we, I think the point is we cannot forget what we've learned over the years while technologies are changing, basic data security concepts and attack methods are still generally the same or they're still existing and need to be considered. And certainly humans are still motivated by many of the same general goals as they've always had to commit crimes throughout history, and that includes with uh, computers. So uh, today we've been speaking with Mark Rash, an attorney and author of Computer Security, Internet Law, and electric, uh, or Electronic Privacy-related articles. He con- created the Computer Crime Unit at the U.S. Department of Justice. If you want to get with Mark, you can reach him at mdrash at gmail.com. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor, pursuing my goal to help all businesses and general the general public to be more aware of security and privacy risks and issues, and also how to mitigate those risks and better protect privacy. You can... Contact me with questions, comments, and give me your show topic ideas using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. My name at MyName.com, basically. Also, please visit my site, Symbus360.com and PrivacyProfessor.org. And remember, please tune in to the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you'll be able to listen to the recordings. And also contact me for information, security, privacy, and compliance, keynotes, providing classes, and also for information about my Symbus 360 cloud services. You can also visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor, to see my appearances on CW Iowa Live morning shows and see the topics we discuss there 
there each month. Until next week, I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Thank you and have a great week ahead. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.